This break is brought to you by the Marine Biology Trip, an evidence for faith adventure in science and the Bible in the Florida Keys for ages 14 and up. Here's what a past student had to say. And it's an educational hands-on experience that you will never forget. <laughs> it's gonna stick with you. And you learn things that you probably wouldn't have learned in normal school. It's not what I expected to come here, but it exceeded my expectations of what it would be like. Cause I thought it would just be like, okay, we do some homework, we snorkel, bam, done. You know, we see some fish. But like, we got to see some really cool stuff and I've formed a lot of cool friendships that I probably never would have without the trip. Find out more about this adventure by clicking the link in the description or go to evidenceforfaith.org slash marine biology. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash marine biology. Coming up on this episode. But when you start looking at other places in the Bible, sometimes it's like in Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, the only, we get very little clues of where they are. So we get traditions that get set up. I think people are so stuck on the traditions. We get so wrapped up in human traditions and historical traditions that we sort of lose the actual facts. Hi, welcome to Evidence for Faith. It's your host, Michael Lane, and we're continuing in our series on the Exodus. Evidence of the Exodus. Did this really take place? Well, in the first lesson, we talked about who was the Pharaoh of the Exodus. And moving on from there, now we get to the second part of this. And we're going to be talking about the, um, the movements of the Israelites up to the crossing of the Red Sea. We came to the conclusion that the Pharaoh of the Exodus was Amenhotep II, but um, his father, Tutmosis III, was the one that was like a parallel of Moses and um, about the same time of Moses. So we come to the conclusion then that he was the big pharaoh that was, uh, was growing up with Moses inside the court from Hatshepsut, bringing him to power. But then Moses, of course, kills an Egyptian and has to flee for his life. And that's in Exodus chapter 2, verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, where he sat down by a well. So we have that taking place. So there's animosity between Pharaoh and um, the Egyptians and Moses. But um, this makes perfect sense with the biblical story as we talked about before. As the Bible states, Moses went to live in the land of Midian. Now that's the key thing I want to bring out here in Exodus 2.15. Where did Moses go? He went and lived in the land of Midian. So now that he's living in the, the land of Midian, where is the land of Midian? And it's not, I do not believe it is the Sinai Peninsula, but it's in Saudi Arabia. And this leads us to a very important question. Then where is Mount Sinai? And we're going to have a whole lesson just on that as we get to the, the last lesson in this series. But in Exodus chapter 3, verses um, 1 and 2, as it starts off, it says, now, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, west side of the wilderness. So there's, there's land over there. And came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. So you're all familiar with this story. This is Moses um, and the burning bush. And it's taking, it's taking place at Mount Horeb. Now, as we've mentioned 
um, in other lessons and stuff, Mount Horeb is also called Mount Sinai. It's got two names for the same place. And this is where Moses has his flocks. This is where he sees the burning bush, and this is where he goes up. Um, so it's Mount Sinai, sometimes called Mount Horeb in Scripture. It's the same place. Now, Paul, in writing to the Galatian church, gives us, he uses this story in um, an analogy and in like in a parable to describe something. But we get a clue here. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 24 and 25, we read, Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is, uh, for slavery, she is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. So where is Mount Sinai? It's in Arabia. That's the key thing. So when Moses goes and he sees the burning bush there and God speaks to him, that's where this is all taking place. And it's in Arabia is what this says. And I believe that this is in present-day Saudi Arabia. Um, ancient maps and stuff show this was the land of Midian, not the Sinai Peninsula. And God tells him, too, that the Pharaoh who is seeking your life is gone now. He, uh, it's safe for you to go back. Um, you're, you're the um, most wanted list you've been removed from and stuff like this. You can go back. So he and Aaron go, and then we see the whole thing having to do with the plagues. Now, is there any evidence of the plagues of Egypt that can be found in archaeology or history? And, well, there are. There are things. Um, but not like you would expect. If you go to the temples of Karnak in Egypt today, tourist sites, you see a lot of Egyptian history. There's nothing about the plagues. You look at all the stelas and plaques um, and monuments that the Egyptians put up. There's nothing mentioned about the plagues. So there's no evidence flat out like, oh, our country was totally destroyed by the God of Israel. You're not going to see that. You see, ancient cultures and most cultures, what they do is they focus on their victories. So you'll go and you'll read at the Temple of Karnak. You can read about Pharaoh Shishak um, going over the, the account where he had conquers into the, um, some of the cities of David and stuff. That's there. They talk about victories. The Assyrians talked about victories. The, Baal, um, the uh, Chaldeans, they talk about victories. But people generally don't write disasters that happen on their country. It just wasn't a way of doing it, except one country, the Hebrew people, the Israelites. And like in the Bible, just read the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. You're going to see um, a lot of places where they do not do well. Uh, disasters that they fall, plagues that come because they disobey. They are one of the few countries and nations ever in history that record the bad things. Um, so the Egyptians don't do this. That is one reason why you're not going to find evidence for the plagues taking place in Egypt because they're not going to want to talk about it. They don't want to talk about having all these bad plagues. There has been a discovery that supports the biblical account of the plagues of Egypt as described exactly as in the Bible. Now, it's called the Ipuer Papyrus. Now, Evidence for Faith has a whole lesson. Matter of fact, it's one of the most popular lessons that we have on our website. And there is a copy of the Ipuer Papyrus. We have a short little piece of it um, actually hanging on the wall right here. And in, we're not going to go into great detail in this lesson, but what is recorded on this um, papyrus is fascinating. Now, 
The Ipuer papyrus, just to give you some background, if you've, if you've not heard the lesson before, it's sometimes called the Papyrus Leiden I-344. It's an ancient document. It is describing catastrophes that befell ancient Egypt. And these events take place in history, but scholars don't agree when they took place. Matter of fact, there are some scholars who say it never took place. This is a myth. But when was the Ipuer papyrus actually written? Well, and when did these events take place? The key pin, the, the fulcrum for this whole thing is actually found time-wise in the book of 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1. That is the fulcrum. Everything is based having to do with biblical time frame on this one verse. God gave us a specific time frame to start and to measure things that took place earlier from this, this verse. It reads in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, in the 400th and 80th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the temple, the house of the Lord. So here we have this taking place. When Solomon built the temple was 480 years after the Israelites came out, so after Passover. So 480 years from there. Now we know from, from uh, other sources, including the Bible, but other uh, outside sources, that Solomon would have built his temple around 960, 967, somewhere in there, very close, give or take a few years. That was the time frame here. So since we know that Solomon built the temple there, we can get this thing. Uh, we can start going back 480 years from 967, go back 480 years, and we come roughly to like 1446 B.C. So 1446 B.C. would have been the time of the plagues. Now again, like I say, scholars can't agree if even these plagues took place. They often, many scholars will not agree on the time frame of this. Um, but I do believe that this fits, and there are many scholars who agree with with this, um, that I'm, I'm just giving you what they say. The Exodus took place at 1446. Some will say, no, it took place um, around 1550. Others say, no, it took place around uh, 1290. You get scholars just can't agree on this. But taking this papyrus, um, the Ipura papyrus, and examining it alongside the Bible, you sort of get that these things do match together around 1446. So a large number of scholars actually do support that period, that the Exodus took place roughly around 1446, 1440, give or take a few years, like I say, in there. So the 1440s was the time this period was taking place. Now, the Ipura papyrus is not written in hieroglyphics. It's hieratic um, script, and it actually mentions different things that happened to the Egyptians. So let me just show you really quick a couple of these as we go through this. Um, one thing that's written on there is it says, there's blood everywhere, lo, the river is blood. Now, many of you are familiar with what took place in the plagues. The first plague, Moses smote the Nile River, which is the main source of water and, and everything for the people there. Their whole culture and uh, livelihood was based on the Nile. And this fits very well because in Exodus chapter um, 7, verses 20 and 21, we read, Aaron and Moses did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and the sight of his servants. He lifted up the staff, struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish of the Nile died, the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. 
Ipuer, who was a, Ipuer was just a poet, but he wrote about this. A second line that's in this papyrus reads, uh, one thirsts for water. Well, as a result of the plague, you can easily see why people would be having a problem with water. And this fits with what the Bible says. In Exodus chapter 7, verse 24, we read, And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. A third part that really fits this whole plague thing, Ipure writes on this papyrus, Lo, trees are felled, branches stripped. Now, if you recall, one of the plagues was hail. And also there's plague of locusts and stuff. But that strips the vegetation. In Exodus chapter 9, verse 24, we read, The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Sounds like Ipuer is describing that event. A fourth line that's in this reads, Lo, grain is lacking on all sides. Hmm. Well, when the plague of locusts came, it, it took out everything. All the grain that had... Uh, that was ready to be harvested, uh, the leaves on trees, everything is basically gone. This one, besides the hail, now you have the locusts to come in and destroy everything also. And this too fits with the biblical account. In Exodus chapter 9, verse 31, we read, The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud. So this plague takes place as there is grain on these plants and stuff that the locusts come and destroy all this. A fifth line in the Ipuer papyrus reads, Birds find neither fruits nor herbs. Well, this makes sense now because the hail and the locusts came, but um, there's even the animals are going to be suffering. But listen to what Exodus chapter 10, verse 15 reads. The locusts came up from all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been seen before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit trees of, that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Ipuer seems to be describing this perfectly. Another line he has is that groaning is throughout the land mingled with laments. As the people are suffering due to agricultural plagues that are now happening, of course they're going to be crying out for help and relief. Because the harm is not just to the people, it's to the livestock also. All of Egypt is being hurt by all of this. And eventually we're going to see also the firstborn when the uh, Passover happens, and all the people are going to also going to be calling out for help again. They're going to be lamenting what's taking place. Exodus chapter 12 verse uh, 30 reads, And Pharaoh rose up in the night and all of his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. No wonder people were crying out. A seventh line in the Ipure papyrus reads, Lo, many dead are buried in the river. The streams is the grave. The tomb became a stream, and he who put his brother in the ground is everywhere. This is talking about dead people, that there's dead people all over the place. All over Egypt, there are dead people, and they're trying to bury all these people. Um, this fits perfectly with what we read 
about the Passover in the book of Numbers, chapter 33, verse 4. The Egyptians are burying all their firstborn whom the Lord has struck down among them. Another line that we see in the Ipure Papyrus is reading, all is ruin. I like that one because this sort of fits perfectly again with what the Bible has recorded. Um, the nation has been devastated by the plagues of God. And the people say uh, this to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 10, verse 7. Then Pharaoh's servant said to him, how long shall this man be a, a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not understand that Egypt is in ruin? Egypt is ruined. Almost the exact same phrase that you see written in the Ipure papyrus. But another part, we're not done. There's another line that's listed in the Ipure papyrus that reads, the land is without light. Now, if you'll recall, one of the plagues of Egypt was darkness. There was darkness over the land. And now this is very interesting because um, Ipure is saying darkness is there too. And Egypt is becoming dark. It was dark for three days. Yet the, the Hebrews in the land of Goshen, they had light. So this is miraculous. But listen to what the Bible has to say about this. In Exodus chapter 10, verses 22 and 23. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. And they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light wherever they lived. Sort of cool. We're not done with it. There's one more. And to me, this is the most amazing one of all. Ipure writes in this poetry of his, that's written on papyrus, reads, gold and lapis lazuli, silver and malachite, carnelian and bronze are fastened on the necks of female slaves. In other words, the wealth of Egypt has been taken and plundered by slaves. Now, compare that to what we read in Exodus chapter 12, verses 35 and 36. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they asked the Egyptians for silver, gold, and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have whatever they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. Now, is this just all a coincidence? Or is this a, a non-biblical document written around the time of the events taking place, describing what is actually taking place in the book of Exodus? I believe so. So, in our Exodus series, it does appear that there were plagues that took place, and the people of the, the Israelites are then going to leave. They plunder Egypt, and then they leave. This break is brought to you by The Marine Biology Trip, an evidence for faith adventure in science and the Bible in the Florida Keys for ages 14 and up. Here's what a past student had to say. Well, I've definitely grown in my knowledge on marine biology. I came here and I knew nothing and I finished through this and I feel like I learned a lot. And I also feel like I grew a lot in my faith and spiritually because it has taught me how the Bible works. It's something that you'll never get somewhere else. Here is a place that I have felt very at home. The group is very inclusive and some of the, all the people you meet here are going to be lifelong friends. Find out more about this adventure by clicking the link in the description or go to evidenceforfaith.org slash marine biology. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash marine biology. So now we come to 
we start getting into the where the big questions are. Where did this all take place? Where were they going? Where was the crossing of the Red Sea? Now, most maps in the back of your Bible, I believe, are an error. And people ask, is there any errors in the Bible, major errors? I usually say, yeah, there's a big one if you have atlases in the back. Because they'll say that the, the crossing of the Red Sea was, was someplace very close to Avaris, very close to the present-day city of Cairo. I don't follow that. I don't believe in that. I think that it was in a different place. That's, that's the old traditional ideas, um, that they crossed somewhere very close to the Egyptian border, very close to the Suez Canal area or something in there. Um, but in doing so, there, there's a problem with this because it doesn't follow the time frame um, that we see from the Bible. The Bible states that the land of Midian is in Arabia. That's where Moses was and he spent a lot of time. That's where he met God and the burning bush. And we see from Paul's writing to the Galatian church that it took place in Arabia. I do not believe that Mount Sinai is in the Sinai Peninsula because it just doesn't fit. And where did this idea come from? It comes from a fourth century tradition. That's where it comes from. It was not something that was universally always said to say to be the exact place. Not like Jerusalem. Um, God said Jerusalem here was, was the city of Jebus, became Jerusalem, and still there today. But when you start looking at other places in the Bible, sometimes it's like in Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. The only, we get very little clues of what they are. So we get traditions that get set up. And starting around the 4th century um, AD, we start seeing some traditions. And I'll tell you, it's hard to break traditions. People think that the Sinai Peninsula, Mount Sinai, just the name, Sinai, Sinai Peninsula, oh, it's got to be in there. So that's where they sort of focused on this. And actually, in the Sinai Peninsula, if you look at some maps, there's 12 different mountains that are being claimed by different scholars that this is the Mount Sinai. I don't think any of them fit the biblical story. I think people are so stuck on the traditions. We get so wrapped up in human traditions and historical traditions that we sort of lose the actual facts. For instance, just let me give you a little, little clue here of what I'm talking about, just a little example. Many people believe that, um, in showing that traditions are hard to break, that Thomas Edison invented the light bulb in 1880. But you know, that's not true. It was actually invented in, in 1807 by a British chemist whose name was Humphrey Davy. But everybody, if you ask anyone who invented the light bulb, they're going to say Thomas Edison. Many people believe that Sir Isaac Newton discovered gravity in 1666 when an apple fell on his head. That's not true. He did see an apple fall, which helped him to come along with some theories on gravity. But gravity was actually discovered long before Isaac Newton. You know that Aristotle, the great Greek, we often think of him as a philosopher, but he was Alexander the Great's tutor, a very, very brilliant man. He first wrote about gravity. And then, after him, Galileo wrote about gravity. And then, Robert Hooke, um, also the guy who discovered cells um, with a microscope. These people also have contributed to gravity before Isaac Newton got into this. Or how about this one? This is one that a lot of people, um, they, they get this tradition, they, they think this is what took place, having to do with um, President Abraham Lincoln, that he freed all the slaves when he signed the Emancipation Proclamation. People will say, um, oh, all the slaves were freed when uh, the Emancipation Proclamation was signed 
by Abraham Lincoln. That's not true. It's not true, though it's sometimes taught in schools and stuff like this. If you read the Emancipation Proclamation, what you're going to see is that Abraham Lincoln only freed the slaves that were in certain counties of the states in rebellion or of the Confederate states. The thing is, there were slaves still in the North. The North still had slaves. Um, it was not illegal in some cases to still have slaves in the North. And the Emancipation Proclamation did not mention them at all. Um, I actually learned about this many years ago, and I even, um, as I read the Emancipation Proclamation back in college, but I also uh, have seen a NOVA uh, special that talked about that briefly, that um, a lot of people think Abraham Lincoln freed all the slaves. No, just the slaves in certain counties in the Confederacy, and that the North still was allowing in certain states, not all, but in certain states was still allowing slavery to exist. Interesting. So the thing is, we still teach these things. We still go through a lot of these, um, these statements like this. These are historical traditions, and it's hard to break these. Like the, the Mount Sinai is in the Sinai. I don't think that's, that fits this at all. And the tradition of this goes back to the uh, Empress Helena, who in a dream uh, was told that this was the mountain, the one that's down there the most that people go to, St. Catherine's Monastery, towards the apex of the bottom of the uh, Sinai Peninsula. Well, that was um, Empress Helena. That was at the time of Constantine in the 300 AD. Um, we get to Emperor uh, Justinian in the mid-6th century. He orders St. Catherine's Monastery to be built on the site that, Princess, um, that Empress Helena actually declared was the spot where Mount Sinai was. Now, Helena did not go and do any archaeological study to find out the spot. Um, she said she got it from an angel. But anyway, it, where this is does not fit. And one thing I find interesting, Muslims, who Moses is very important to, um, the Muslims, the, the people of the Islam belief, have all said for, for centuries, the Christians have got the wrong mountain. You're not even in the right place. You're in the Sinai Peninsula. You need to be in Arabia. They have always said that Mount Sinai is in Arabia. Interesting that they have that opinion. Now, let me give you a clue, and I think a major clue exists for helping us find where this is taking place and where all these events, after the Israelites had the plagues um, dished out on the Egyptians and the Passover takes place and then they leave. I want to bring to your attention something a lot of people don't often study in this, but the time frame. Again, going back to that fulcrum in 1 Kings, we, we start to see a time frame taking place. How long, for instance, did it take the Hebrew nation, the Israelites, to go from Passover to Mount Sinai? That's an important clue for finding out what's going on. Now, to answer that question, we have to go back to a discussion that was taking place between Pharaoh and Moses himself. And I have to ask you, what did Moses tell Pharaoh that they wanted to do, that the Hebrew people wanted to do? Now, one of the traditions, again, historical heresy that takes place is uh, they say that Moses told Pharaoh they wanted to, to go to the promised land. No, that is not true. Because look what we read in Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. 
Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast in the wilderness. That's the message that Pharaoh got from Moses. Now, the thing is, no, Moses wasn't actually telling him a lie, but he's telling him the truth. They, they did go out and hold the feast. But that's what the, he's saying. We, the, the Hebrew nation wants to go out and have a feast, hold a feast for the Lord and worship him out there. That was truth, but only part of it. Now, because of that, that is, that is a key clue. Because Pharaoh's under the impression that if, even if he lets the slaves go, they're going to come back. That if they take in their, all their livestock and stuff and go out into the wilderness, they're going to come back because they're just going out to do a feast. So, uh, unlike the Hollywood version, the Exodus taking place from, from Passover to going to Mount Sinai didn't happen in just like a week. It actually took 45 days or 47 days, depending on how you're going to read this. But it actually takes um, a, well over a month to get out there to that place. How do we know this? Take a look at Exodus chapter 16, verse 1. It says, they set out from Elim, and all the congregation of people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. On the Hebrew calendar, the 15th day of the month is approximately a month, 45 days after Passover. Then 45, 47 days. Some rabbis do, do teach it's 47. I'm taking a shorter one on this one. Say it's 45. To go from Elim to there is 45 days. Now, remember, they're having to walk and stuff. I grant you that. And, and that's part of the thing. But if the real Mount Sinai is in the Sinai Peninsula, and plus the places are going to be mentioned, they don't all line up. If the real Mount Sinai is, as Paul wrote, in Arabia, then when the Israelites are going to cross the Red Sea and stuff like this, it all fits the time frame. Again, the Hollywood version, it, it all seems like it's taking place in a week, but it's not. It's over a month and a half to get there, um, and they have to do some traveling. We start to get a clue. Moses gives us little clues along the way of places they had to go. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 37, it says, And the people journeyed, now they've left now, the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sakoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Now, where are these two places that are mentioned? Ramses and Sukkoth. Okay, that's the key to this thing. And the, these two cities are actually 30 miles apart. They have been discovered, and they're 30 miles apart. Um, so for a mass uh, multitude of people of various ages um, traveling on this on foot to go uh, at least to get down to Sukkoth, that's going to take some time. Now, you might be wondering, too, why were they going? Why does he mention Sakoth? Sakoth is very important to the story because they were required to take the bones of Joseph back to the promised land with them as they depart Egypt. So did you realize that the whole time they were carrying a mummy with them throughout the whole journey, even the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, they had his mummy. Would you like to be the person responsible for carrying that? Well, somebody had to carry it because they had to bring it back with them, and they had to bury him in um, the land of um, his ancestors. Now, as we see this, we, 
Um, it, it tells us this specifically in Scripture in Exodus chapter 13, verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. So we know that they were carrying him, but they had to go to Sakoth because that's where his mummy was to get it and take it with them. Have you ever wondered how, if the biblical account of the numbers of those people is actually accurate and true? Did you see in that verse it said um, prior to that that we're talking about 600,000 people, um, in, including women and children and stuff like this? How'd they ever get such a large multitude? As I was doing this presentation many years ago, a, afterwards a, a fellow came up to me, an adult man came up and he asked me a question. He says, I don't understand how the Israelites could be that large when it's just starting with Jacob's sons just so many years before in the book of Genesis. And by the time the Exodus take place, there's like over a million people total. I don't understand how you can do that. And well, besides uh, my answer sort of was, or jokingly I said, well, they were like rabbits. Um, just multiplying like crazy. But um, also, you, you have to take into account, there's no TV, there's no internet, there's not a lot of things to do. So what are the people going to do um, the, while they're in slavery and stuff? They produce a lot of kids. But I said, there's also a clue in the Bible to answer your question. The Bible records that it was just not the Israelites that were traveling with them in the Exodus. Did you know that? No, it's actually in the Bible. I mean, some Egyptians did. Just imagine, if you're an Egyptian, you're living through the plagues that are mentioned in the Bible. And each one of the plagues is knocking out one of your primary gods, because that's what all these plagues were about. Wouldn't you start to get the idea that the gods I've been worshiping here in Egypt are not really gods, but the, the God of the Israelites is really a true God. I'm going to switch and start worshiping him. What I end up telling this person was that in Exodus chapter 12, verse 38, it specifically mentions how this number is so big. It says, a mixed multitude went up with them, and very much livestock and flocks and herds. But did you catch this? A mixed multitude. It's not just the Hebrew people. Some people are joining the Hebrew people. You will see this throughout the whole Exodus and to the time of the Promised Land, that people start to join on. Um, Rahab, during the, the, um, the uh, destruction of Jericho, her and her family, they become Hebrew, they, or they join into the Hebrew nation. The Bible just records that it was a mixed group that traveled with them. No, so no doubt, many Egyptians and other people from Egypt, seeing their gods totally wiped out, join the Israelites as they leave. Now, after leaving Sakath, the Bible records the direction and the road that the people were taken. It reads in Exodus 13, verses 17 through 20. And when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them, by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds and when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt. They moved on from Sukkoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. Now, that's a key section there. Notice from this passage that they leave Egypt and they arrive at Etham before they've crossed the Red Sea. So there is some time frame taking place here. So where is Etham? Archaeologists don't know for, for certain. They don't. I mean, many archaeologists can't agree on the color of an orange. They, they don't know for certain. There's been many suggestions that have been made in numerous locations all over the Middle East, uh, around Egypt to Arabia many different places. One such 
place that is starting to gain more and more prominence is a, a spot that's about 25 miles to the west of the town um, of Aqaba in Saudi Arabia. And this is just to the west in the Sinai Peninsula. And this is what some believe. And as I've been reading the papers on this, I've come to believe that this is a very good likely candidate for being Etham. If you see an area here, it's way over to the east. So they've been traveling a period of time. Remember, it's going to be a month and a half of traveling total. And so as they're moving across and what they're riding or moving on are dried up riverbeds. Because God told them, you're not going to take the nice roads up by the coast and go that way. So God's taking them on a different way out into the wilderness. And the wilderness is mentioned many times that Pharaoh's after them in the wilderness. The wilderness has shut them in and stuff. So they're traveling out that way. So one archaeological view, and this is the one I am hearing to, and I'm trying to put forth for you, is that I believe the crossing of the Red Sea actually takes place across the Gulf of Aqaba, which is part of the Red Sea, at a place called Nueve. Nueve is on the western side of the Sinai Peninsula. If this is correct, the Israelites traveled through various wadis off the main road. Now, remember too, Moses, when he was running away from the Egyptians, he spent 40 years um, out in the land of Midian. Now, during this 40 years, he no doubt traveled around with his flocks and knew these areas and knew places to get water and, and knew the different passageways and the wadis and stuff. He was very familiar with all this. So being he lived in this area for 40 years, he would be very familiar with the paths going out through the desert into the wilderness. In Exodus 14.3, we read, For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. You notice it says they're out wandering around in the wilderness. That's Pharaoh's opinion of what's going on. Remember, he was told that they're going out there to hold the feast. That's what they were going to do. They were going to hold the feast. Um, and then I, I imagine under Pharaoh's impression, they're going to come back. Though he was afraid they might leave, but Moses had said, we're just going out to do this feast. But now Pharaoh starts to find out, hey, uh, I didn't get the whole story on this. Because in verse 5 of chapter 14 of Exodus, we read, When the king of Egypt was told the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. And they said, What is this we have done that we've let Israel go from serving us? Recall that Moses had said that the people were just going into the wilderness to hold a feast, to worship God. Pharaoh is now informed that these travelers are not coming back. But you notice he's informed. Now, how is he informed? Somebody had to be out there, travel part of the distance, and come back to make a report. So there's got to be time here because they're out in the desert, and somehow then Pharaoh is told. We're not told who it was who brought the message, how many days it was, but considering what they have done already, there's been a span of time where Pharaoh is saying they're way out in the wilderness now, wandering around, the wilderness trapped them. And now somebody comes along, probably on one of these routes, they see these Hebrew people, and now they come up and they go and they report it to Pharaoh. So Pharaoh finds out, oh my gosh, they've tricked us, they're not coming back. So he does what? He mobilizes his armies to go and give chase. 
and we read this in Exodus, the next couple of verses, 14, 6, and 7. So he made ready his chariots and took his army with him and took 600 chariot, chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. Now, there's two major points I want to make about this, this statement here, these two verses. First of all, some critics say that this has to be wrong since the Exodus story already has most of the livestock being wiped out because of the, pl the plagues. Thus, there would not be um, all these horses that could you know, pull these chariots. They, they would have been killed. They would have succumbed to the, to the plagues. But remember, who was the Pharaoh before all this taking place? Tutmosis III. Tutmosis III set up outposts and forts. And even at the beginning of Amenhotep II's reign, who's the Pharaoh, I believe, of the Exodus, he has to put down some rebellions, and he goes out and he conquers also. So outside of the, the primary city, the capital of Egypt here, there's forts in the area where horses would be, no doubt not affected by these plagues. These plagues were right on the Egyptians there. Thus, when Pharaoh sees during the plagues, these horses are all killed off, livestock killed off, no doubt he called to, sent messengers to the forts around and places and stables and told them, um, hey, the capital's without all this, you need to bring some of these people back. So they brought some. It's not said in the Bible, but we do know the Bible wiped out livestock, and then all of a sudden we have all these horses. This makes perfect sense if you just think about how big and how many forts and stuff the, the Egyptians had built up under Tutmosis III, who was a military genius. But critics will say that's a problem. A second point I want to make about this, Pharaoh had to, it says, mobilize his army. The army had to be mobilized. Now, the horses are coming from probably different outposts around coming into the area. Pharaoh now finds out, after all these days have passed for these Egyptians being traveling out in the wilderness, Pharaoh is now informed that they're, they're not coming back. He then mobilizes his army. Now, in mobilizing an army, a large army, to go out and do battle, that's what's going on. You don't do this overnight. Even with, now this was in ancient history, even modern military equipment and stuff like this in modern nations, you don't mobilize troops that fast because to do this, you have to, even in modern armies, um, remember this is a long time ago with chariots. Today we have tanks and stuff, but to go, you had to get the chariots ready. You had to get food for the horses. You have to get food for the men. You're gonna have to carry water supplies. You're gonna have to get your weapons, sharpen your weapons or whatever. There's a lot, what I'm saying is, there's a lot of work being done to mobilize an army. It doesn't happen overnight. You just don't tell your general, go get, uh, 600 troops and take off. It doesn't happen very fast like that. So it takes some time. And then they had to mobilize the army to go after them. So there's some time, again, taking place here. This break is brought to you by the Marine Biology Trip, an evidence for faith adventure in science and the Bible in the Florida Keys for ages 14 and up. Here's what a past student had to say. Throughout the day, We'd snorkel, we'd uh, search different spots for different creatures, and then we would uh, classify. And then we do lectures by Mike Lane. He goes into deep detail about stuff that you probably didn't know about the Bible. And I feel like I have learned a lot more about like the crucifixion, even about like science with the Bible. So like that science helps prove the Bible, not the other way around, like people at school try to teach us. Find out more about this adventure by clicking the link in the description or go to evidenceforfaith.org slash marine biology. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash marine biology.
Now, we find a major clue in Scripture to help us find out where the Israelites camped before crossing the Red Sea. Exodus chapter 14, verse 9 reads, The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped by the sea by Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zaphon. All right. The place is mentioned where they are camped. Places mentioned, it's called Pihahiroth. What does that mean? It means, in a literal interpretation, it means the mouth of the gorges. Now, this is very interesting. When you examine the geographical region of Nuebe, and one finds what's there. Um, it's, it's a beach with only one huge opening at the gorge. There's only one way in. The beach terminates at both ends along this Gulf of Aqaba. Um, there's so many mountains and stuff, it's a very mountainous area, but there's one gorge that pours out and it's a huge beach. This beach is so large, you can see it from outer space. You can actually see it from orbit. This is a huge beach. It's quite large enough to hold the entire Israelites. All of them, and there's room to spare because today in Nueve, there's an airport on that beach, there's many um, buildings, homes, there's ho hotel resorts and stuff. It's a, it's a resort area in some places on that beach. It's a huge beach, probably the largest like beach like that in the, in the entire world. And that's where they camped. It would be large enough for them to camp. And what's right, on, right before them is the Red Sea, the Gulf of Aqaba. So Pihahiroth means the mouth of the gorge. I want to give you another clue, though, from the book of Josephus. And in his book, he writes in um, his book called The Jewish Antiquities, Book 2, Section 15, he writes this about this crossing. Now, when the Egyptians had overtaken the Hebrews, they drove them into a narrow place. They also seized on the passages by which they imagined the Hebrews might fly, shutting them up between inaccessible prefaces and the sea. For, the, for there was on each side a ridge of mountains that terminated at the sea, which was impassable by reason of their roughness and obstructed their flight. Wherefore, they were pressed upon the Hebrews and their army, where the ridges of the mountains were closed with the seas. This is perfectly describing this area of what we today call Nueve Beach. And it has only one opening coming in, one major opening off of this wadi. And the wadi is this dried up riverbed. And as it comes off there, it's between where it empties out, that wadi is between two very, very large mountains. This fits Pihahiroth as the name. So Josephus's description fits the biblical account very well. At the same time, Nueve, that site, fits also just as well with the Israelite crossing. Now, one aspect of, of the, the story, according to Hollywood, um, that I've always had a problem with, with is when, um, when they see, when the Hebrew people see the Egyptians approaching them down through the wadi, um, or they're, they're coming after them and Pharaoh's army is coming after them. Um, I always wondered by watching like the movie The Ten Commandments, which is a great film. I love to watch the film. A lot of errors in it, but I love watching the film. And when the, um, the Egyptians are coming with the Israelites trapped at the Red Sea, I always wondered when God comes down 
and he puts a pillar of cloud there, a pillar of fire. Why didn't the Egyptians just go around it? Well, if you look at where Nueve Beach is, and if God puts a pillar of cloud there, <laughs> you're going to see you can back up that army through that wadi back into the mountains, and it can't go anywhere. That's really a, um, an amazing thing because this spot fits this perfectly. And we know that this took place. In Exodus chapter 14, verses 19 and 20, says, Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud was moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the hosts of Egypt and the hosts of Israel. So there's a pillar of cloud. There's just a pillar. So where the Egyptians are, it's got to be someplace they can't go around it. Here at Nueve Beach, where you have the mouth of the gorge, Pi-ha-hiroth, this fits perfectly by putting a cloud there. You could back up the army. This has been shown in military history. When the Persians came um, to conquer Greece, they got to, up in the Macedonian area, they got to a place called Thermopylae, very mountainous area, and there was only one narrow spot for the army to go through. And that's where the Spartans had their, their little Alamo, where they stayed there and died but in the meantime, they killed thousands and thousands of Persians because it was a small gap and they got backed up. So things like this, you can, you can easily block a powerful force if you have to, them to have to come through a small opening. I hope you've enjoyed this lesson and in our series that we're doing on the Exodus. And I hope you will tune in for the next one that's coming up because the next one is so cool about the crossing of the Red Sea. And then we'll have a following lesson about Mount Sinai itself. So until we meet again, take care and may God bless. Support the show. Become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. This break is brought to you by the Marine Biology Trip, an evidence for faith adventure in science and the Bible in the Florida Keys for ages 14 and up. Here's what a past student had to say. And it's an educational hands-on experience that you will never forget. <laughs> it's gonna stick with you. And you learn things that you probably wouldn't have learned in normal school. It's not what I expected to come here, but it exceeded my expectations of what it would be like. Cause I thought it would just be like, okay, we do some homework, we snorkel, bam, done. You know, we see some fish. But like we got to see some really cool stuff and I've formed a lot of cool friendships that I probably never would have without the trip. Find out more about this adventure by clicking the link in the description or go to evidenceforfaith.org slash marine biology. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash marine biology.